morning, thank you. Um, I'm just gonna have us introduce ourselves very briefly. And as was said, I'm Marcia Nickerson. I was actually the chair of Imaginative in Media Festival for many, many years and um, involved in film primarily through that organization and left in order to develop the protocols uh, over the past year. And I'll give you a brief introduction of those before we get into the questions. But first, um, I'll have everyone introduce themselves. So Nyla, the one thing she left out was that you're a writer for Marvel Comics, which I think is so cool, <laughs> which is the coolest for me. Um, so Nyla Nukshuk, Jenny, who is also, uh, Dr. Dupuy is also an artist as well as uh, an indigenous educator. And uh, Bear, in addition to being of a tribe called Red, of a tribe called Red, he is also a visual artist. Um, so, Nyla, is there anything else you'd like to say? Nope. <laughs> we just get into it. Okay. <laughs> so, the, the protocols that we developed um, at Imaginative, they will be housed in the Indigenous Screen Office that, that was created uh, about a year and a half or two years ago and is, is currently run by <laughs> Jesse Wente. Um, they were brought about because of, the, I think, just because of the burgeoning film industry and the need to start to write down some best practices um, and just deal with issues, uh, long-standing issues of cultural repression and cultural appropriation and what the indigenous worldview of, of making film and television is. Um, in the context of this new office, in the context of the burgeoning industry, and in the context of narrative sovereignty. So that's really the underlying concept of the principles. Um, and narrative sovereignty just means having control um, and decision-making and uh, over your own cultural expression. Um, again, to just combat some of the, the laws and policies that have been around for a hundred years that have repressed indigenous languages and um, indigenous culture. I think at one point, someone said it best in that I think likely 90 or not more percent of what you see in film and television is, around indigenous people is created by non-indigenous people. So it's trying to shift that lens and provide a bit of a world view of, of what that means, um, including access to, access to culture and stories that are owned by communities or by families. Um, again, in expressing a world view, it's very different when um, cultural property laws today talk about intellectual property and individual ownership, um, which is, although there are, you know, three different indigenous overarching cultures in Canada and something like 60 different languages and as many different nations, um, this is looking at, one of the similarities is that uh, cultural property, traditional storytelling, is considered something that is owned uh, by a community. Um, and that's not captured in any of the current laws. So addressing issues such as that, um, and then how, how that impacts decision-making on the part of filmmakers or artists, um, 
how they strive to have their own expression within that cultural context. So there are no laws currently around traditional knowledge and, and cultural property that encompass more of a collective uh, ownership and view. So these uh, protocols are really a collection of best practices of how uh, all of these different filmmakers and content creators have worked with community over the years. So gathering those best practices and distilling down what are the principles. And the principles are, you know, s remarkably similar considering the differences across the country. Um, but principles such as reciprocity, you know, when you're working with the community, you just don't come in and take a story. Um, there's a, a reciprocal relationship there that you have to respect. Or the concept that a lot, all of the indigenous screen content creators that we talk to feel this sense of community responsibility or what the responsibility is of an artist and how that accountability relates back to the community. It's a very different model than I think um, that than people are used to. So. And these are things that were prevalent throughout the discussions. It was remarkable how similar the practices were, even though they're different cultures. Um, it was remarkable how much people agreed on approach. And you know, can't get everybody to agree on everything, but um, just just interesting that that those concepts were shared and the practices were used. And because there's so many different entry points, there's territorial protocols, there's cultural protocols, there are um, film protocols, and there's community protocols. So this, the, what we did is really just a map of how to access those pieces and things that you should be aware of and take into consideration um, when working with communities and on certain subject matters. Um, so even if you were telling, for example, an individual story, that whole concept of, of your responsibility to community means that that's, you know, you, permission, you don't just get permission from one person. Permissions are often from entire communities or uh, families. They could be family-owned stories. So there's a different protocol, um, and you need to know how to navigate where that consent lies to tell that story. And it's often quite different. So you might access through that, that through an elder. You might access that through your own family. Um, so that's a really general outline of, of what I think the, the protocols are trying to address, some of those key pieces. And each of these artists has worked with protocols in, in their work and sometimes in their collaborations together, which is really interesting. So I'll move, move now to just getting them to speak about their own processes and uh, how they've used protocols in their work just to start to illustrate what that means. Nyla, um, I'll start with you. How would you say you've used protocols in the creation of your work, and maybe where did those protocols stem from? Yeah, I think it kind of, well, it kind of depends on the project for sure, um, whether I'm an outsider within the community or um, this is a story from within my community, because um, I do work a lot within First Nations communities. I myself am Inuk from Nunavut. Um, 
but I'm also someone, an Inuk that's lived in Toronto since I was 17. So I also have, you know, a Southern perspective as well. Um, so when I, even when I'm working back up in Nunavut, I feel like there's certain protocols that I follow as a Southern-based Inuk um, because I'm, I recognize that I'm not part of the everyday community. And, um, and so even with, um, I'm currently uh, directing a feature. Some of my colleagues are here, some of my producers. Um, and um, we're, we're making a movie up in Nunavut, and we've also got a Nunavut-based Inuk producer as well. Um, that was one kind of way that we thought, it was just important for me um, uh, for a, a number of reasons. Um, I think having Inuit representation at all levels of, um, or, or just Indigenous representation when you're making an Indigenous film or Indigenous artwork, having Indigenous representation at all levels, um, including leadership positions, um, and it be also more than just me. Um, I find that a lot of the times when I'm getting, I get a lot of, um, uh, of requests to do work, maybe um, coming on projects that have been developed and, you know, to a certain point, um, and it might have Indigenous content, um, but they don't have in any Indigenous representation. Um, so they're looking for an Indigenous um, producer or writer or director. And, you know, it sometimes is... So it's, um, yeah, kind of like th these kinds of things are just um, things that I consider um, through all aspects of my work. And that brings up one important point. The protocols define an Indigenous production, so whether that's a film or, or something else, as having two out of the three key creatives, uh, so whether that's the producer, writer, or director, two of those three positions would be Indigenous in order to be considered an Indigenous production. And honestly, the preference, the vision, is to have three out of three, um, but I think in film and television, as we build the industry and build, you know, the production capacity, that will definitely shift. Um, but also to Nyla's point, like, you know, even being from up there, but ensuring you have someone in the community that's already there helping you navigate, that is also a practice that people spoke about a lot. Yeah, and it also just, for people that are going into Indigenous communities and, and small Indigenous communities, it just is the only way you're going to actually make it work, like, coming in from the outside and... Um, without any kind of involvement from the community is um, just like practically not a good idea. Um, and, and it will be a better pro project in the end. Um, and so, yeah, that kind of, kind of that involvement from the community and having the, and, and you know what, having the uh, protocols and, and actual guideline, because our production were really, um, from the very beginning without, you know, an official protocol list, we're planning on incorporating all of these ideas into our production plan. And that meant, you know, building mentorship and workshop opportunities into our production plan um, and certainly getting, um, getting the communities on board and involved in the production. But it was so nice to have an actual kind of like checklist to just also refer to. And these kind of um, input from different people that have actually worked within these communities that... Um, and so to kind of be able to right away be like, okay, before we can do anything, we have to have a letter written in English and also in Nuktitut and sent to the Hamlet and get their approval from the, from the Hamlet's council to, to even film there. 
And so we kind of, you know, we'd been kind of going ahead of <laughs> planning this big movie and going so far as like, you know, writing this script and, and it's so much based in this community. And it's like, okay, we have to go and actually talk to this community and really kind of, you know, it is, because obviously um, it's, I, I'm very much involved with the community. I've got family there, but it is important to kind of have these, um, uh, also it, just have these kind of, um, to kind of make that formal request and get everybody on board was, um, with, and just have a, a clear path to do that um, was just was really was really great for me and also working with non-indigenous um, uh, colleagues being able to have something that's like oh yeah before we do this this is what this is what we do and it, then it's not just on me as an indigenous uh, member of the team having to kind of hound on my non-indigenous colleagues about stuff because it's like an official thing that we're actually following now. Um, and I feel like that's actually really helpful. And Jenny, you're actually following a set of protocols right now in, uh, with, your, with your book. Did you want to speak about that? So for, for us, it's been about a three-year process, um, more than three years. We started off writing um, I'm Not a Number, but I think I actually, at the time, I was never thinking in terms of protocols per se. I think it was actually more rooted in thinking of my beliefs, my values, and my ethics. And it was really 100% rooted in that. And I made sure that I held very, very firm on that. So thinking about you know, those teachings that were passed down to me or those values that my family and my community you know, reminded me time and time again, um, you know, to always ask for permission. Um, so when we started writing the story, um, first we, we got permission from my family, recognizing this. this is a... The story, I'm not a number, is about my, my grandmother's experience um, at a residential school in Northern Ontario. It's a true story, right? So we have to think about how that would impact uh, not only my family, but also my community when we're sharing that story. Um, so permissions were extremely important. Um, and when, as we were walking and writing um, the, the story, um, it was constantly going back. And fortunately, we had the space to go back and ask my family to review um, the words that were being written, um, the imagery in terms of um, the work that the illustrator was doing, and um, talking through that with them. Um, at times, it's a, in a very emotional experience, and so I think we're always having to think of how do you create those safe spaces for discussions um, to take place as well. For, and then also, those voices have been silenced for so, so many years. Um, in my community, we really didn't talk about the residential schools. I didn't hear about it as a kid, and it wasn't really discussed until more recently, especially with the, the TRC, and we were writing it pre-TRC. Um, so thinking about that, that's, there's a lot to go into that. More recently, um, we started on doing the translation, and we wanted to bring the community story home um, in the language of the Nipissing dialect. So I'm from Nipissing First Nation. Um, so for that, it was to rethink a process of what translation looks like, and I'm very fortunate to Second Story for giving us that space and that time to rethink what that looks like for translation. So it wasn't taking it and giving it to somebody with the assumption that it's going to be directly Ojibwe, any dialect. Um, it was the time to talk about what do dialects look like, what do they mean, who should be writing the story. Um, it wasn't an official translator. And it, that, that when I say that, when I say official translator, it wasn't somebody who works 100% in the time uh, in that, but it was our language speakers in their community who were given the task or um, encouraged to work with us. Um, and from that, we turned the story over to them and gave them the space and the time um, to, to work through that, which was a very difficult time for them. 
um, in the sense of uh, trying to rethink you know, how words are translated. It's not a direct translation, um, but it was a, and who should be involved in that. So there was three people involved in that, Muriel Sawyer, um, Geraldine McLeod, and Tori Fisher. And from that, there was also, um, as they were translating, they went to a council or various groups of people within our community as well to see how they felt about certain words being used or no longer used anymore and changed. I often get the question, because as you were saying, people say, well, what if it's just one person's story? You know, I just need permission from that person. And I often use residential school stories as an example of how it, it, it's, a communi- it's, it's not an individual story, even though it's that one person that has gone through school. And I have a bit of a hard time explaining it beyond that, except for that, you know, churches are still within communities, there's still a lot of impacts, and, and there's a lot of history of of things unsaid and untold, so it's also very culturally sensitive. Therefore, you work with elders or you work with uh, cultural support workers and ensure that your subject is safe. But it, can you explain it any better than that for me in terms of um, what it means as a, how the residential school, how you go about moving beyond individual permission to community in, in that case in particular? This was something I just learned as we as we walked. It was the idea of being conscious and careful about emotions, people's emotions, people's feelings, people's experiences. Um, you're working in a community where a large number of people were taken and removed from a community with the intent um, not only to oppress, but when you think that there was acts of genocide, um, people no longer, you know, in our cases, we didn't grow up. A lot of people didn't. We didn't grow up with the language. Um, you know, different abuses took place, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it was a community that was somewhat, you would say, sort of at times fractured, right? At times fractured. Um, so you have to be careful when you're thinking of a period of time where we're trying to heal. And when you're trying to, in some cases, um, it's like taking off the wounds at times, right? Stripping, stripping things back. Because suddenly you're, you're reintroducing people to trauma again by having these discussions and how do you do it in a safe and very careful and conscious way. Um, so it started very slowly, a discussion of the idea that we wanted to, you know, when initially I was sitting with Margie um, at Second Story and offered the opportunity and going back very carefully to my family and talking about, you know, their experiences and how they feel about sharing it, not only within the community, but also as a book that can be shared in schools, that can be shared um, in libraries or other community spaces. and and what that means. Um, and then when we talked about it from a greater perspective of the idea of, you know, we're trying to heal as a family, but how can we do it through um, story to help others to understand and even others to heal. So I think it was being careful and conscious with those conversations and also letting them know that at any time we can stop the process or pause the process. Um, and but at any time as well, we would always be engaging them and they would have the idea of, um, of having their voice always heard with considerations that for a long time their voices were taken away or, or not heard or understood. And Bear, you often collaborate with different nations or people from different nations in the creation of your music. So how would you talk about how you use protocols? Uh, I think first I just want to acknowledge that, uh, how important this work is of, of putting together protocols, um, especially because one of the things I speak about in my work a lot is that uh, the long history of indigenous people not having control of our own image. And that goes right through film, television, the uh, photographs and portraiture, paintings, like it's always been our image through the lens of uh, 
you know, of, of other people. Uh, and now that we're coming into this really exciting time where we have all these indigenous cultural producers who are making amazing work and using our culture, it also opens it up to other people to say, oh, well, these guys are doing it. We can start, we can start using it too. Uh, I mean, just this morning I found a video of uh, a woman in a festival, a European woman in a festival somewhere in Europe singing on top of one of our songs and calling it a remix and talking about how she was working with her brothers from a tribe called Red. We've never heard of this person before. You know, so, um, you know, I think, uh, it, you know, being able to protect ourselves as we gain the, the, the strength and the agency to be able to tell our stories from our own perspective, that we need that protection. Um, but also we have to look um, at the way that we treat other indigenous cultures as well, that we, you know, it's not just we can take from everybody. Um, and I think the best way I can explain that uh, is through telling a story of how, how we stepped in shit. Uh, in, in our early days, you know, and how we had to really quickly think about uh, what, it, what protocols meant, you know, and that we had on one side to deal with, you know, legal, legal protocols and things we needed to do to clear songs uh, to, to, to sample a drum group. Um, but on the other hand, the cultural protocols that we also had to, to respect and, and didn't necessarily right away. Um, there was a case uh, with an early track that we had remixed and we cleared the sample with the, the label that owned the sample. Uh, and figuring that that label was in contact with the drum group that we were sampling, that they, that they were aware and had given permission for us to use that song. Meanwhile, a couple years down the road, we got a cease and desist order from that drum group saying, you're using our music without permission. And you know, kind of like we've told you before and you gotta stop. And we really had to take a second and think, and it was like, okay, well, we've, we've paid this label, we've licensed this song, we've did all these things, but we didn't personally go to that drum group and ask them if we could use their song. You know, and in, in powwow culture, that's a huge, huge no-no. If you're going to sing somebody's song, you need to have that person's permission. And in our heads, well, we weren't singing the song, we were sampling it, and there was lots of ways that we were able to justify the, that we had all the pieces together. But it wasn't until we got that call and we realized that, you know, that we couldn't just trust the label to be in contact and follow those protocols for us, that we had to go in there and actually speak to people and create relationships with the drums that we wanted to sample from and work with. Uh, and that's now grown to a point now where we, we get into the studio with people. We're, we're actually working you know, uh, with the drums uh, step by step. Uh, yeah. And so now, has it demonstrated any different ways that you work with your, your creation in terms of intellectual property? Um, yeah, I mean, like, the, 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 I guess the need and the want to actually directly work with the drums came from that. Mm -hmm. You know, rather than looking for stuff to sample, uh, really, like, looking for direct collaboration. You know, like, making sure that we are working, not, not just working with people who are all right with us sampling it and all right, you know, uh, well, okay, like we, um, one of the things we decided early on was that we would split the money with the drum 50%, which mm -hmm. is like, that's not the way that usually sampling works uh, in, in terms of a financial thing, but to us, it was just as important that we were using these songs. That was 50% of what we were doing. So we were already like compensating people like we were collaborating directly with them. Mm -hmm. But they, they, to actually start to physically do that work uh, together, was a huge change. And that comes back to, I think, one of the key protocols around what meaningful collaboration means and when you're working with a community 
a lot of filmmakers are are trying to have that reciprocity. So whether it's financial compensation or um, there's a filmmaker, Elmaya Tailfeathers, who who did a huge project and spent her own time and energy and money often going back and re doing the footage so that she could give it back to the community so that they had the footage and they could use it in whatever way they saw fit, um, whether that was for tourism or, or anything else. So that concept of reciprocity and sometimes it can't necessarily be monetary or we haven't really just begun to talk about what does that look like in, a, in, a, in the film world where that's not part of a budget or you know, that's not necessarily taken into account. So now looking at practice, how do we how do we do that from the beginning? Or what does what does the community want in terms of reciprocity? What would work for them? So things like, as Nyla was saying, uh, mentorships or positions in the community that are paid to help you navigate um, what you're doing in creation. Jenny, did you have any other thoughts on you know that whole concept of ownership and intellectual property and how it pertains to, to writing? I think over the years I've been rethinking that process um, because at the time, I'll be honest, when I was when we were starting that story, it was something we weren't really thinking about, about who owned the story. Um, of course, it's my community and the end of my family, but from a legal perspective, it's a little bit different, right? When people talk about copyright and stuff like that, but definitely rethinking that. But at the time, I think what um, where the struggle was is I was trying to think of um, I was hearing people that were writing um, children's books and they were having uh, difficulty um, working with publishers, especially, in, I'm talking about indigenous writers, they were having difficulty at the time working with publishers and they were telling me that, you know, they handed over the text and from there they lost everything. You know, titles were being changed, images were being used that they never even got to see or got to approve and along the way, and I was, I was fortunate to have that, to have that opportunity, you know, everything shared along the way, so, you know, seeing the drawings and going back and the illustration story and sending it back um, for some of my family members to look at and see if they felt comfortable with it and for them to send photographs back and saying, you know, maybe change the image a little bit this way and, and, and then have those conversations and those relationships being developed um, to be able to talk through what the title should be and, you know, there were some suggestions and people to work through that and talk through language of, you know, some people may think that a word should be used you know, one of the words was, you know, maybe you should use grandmother instead of granny, Jenny, and me trying to have that conversation back, and it was kind of hurtful at times because people didn't really understand in some cases that, you know, granny, we use that in our communities. We, we use the word even as adults, grannies and aunties and all of those kind of things, but sometimes you're working with, with people that have different understandings of language or different experiences in their own lives, and, and at times that gets, believe it or not, a little bit emotional. Um, so I think it was working through things like that. So when I talk about... When you, when you talk about um, you know, ownership and all that kind of stuff, I think in my case, I, I look at it from my perspective of that experience that I had of being able to, to have the opportunity to, to have conversations, to have relationships, and to be able to make changes and modifications until the very, very end, and to feel good about the product when we finished with it, where others may not. So the last piece that uh, we wanted to talk about was how companies or businesses or the various industries can help support uh, meaningful collaboration through working through protocols. And uh, I think Nyla referenced it. Uh, there is not a filmmaker or content creator that I have talked to that hasn't been approached by a non-Indigenous filmmaker or creator to 
generally towards the end of their process in order to just uh, ensure that what they've said is correct or or try to get permissions or various approvals or, or their boxes ticked at the very end of their... Uh, so something's been submitted to a film festival and now they are checking to see if they've expressed the treaty properly. You know, uh, or there's no one I've or talked to... they need to. a broadcast license. Or... Yeah, there's no one I've talked to that hasn't been approached to do some free consultation and to... Uh, to help work with non-Indigenous people very, very late in the process. Um, and so I'm just thinking about meaningful collaboration in, in that way, but also just what we can maybe expect or would like to see from the industry to help propagate our own Indigenous sovereignty, narrative sovereignty. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think one of the things that's pretty clear by like some of these just practical examples is that if, that it takes a lot of work to make, um, you know, a, a, you know, these um, true collaborations work. Um, it's not easy. There's going to be times where there's more qualified people than, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're the best person. I mean, you take, uh, for an example, the translation, it's like, you know, the, the obvious answer isn't the necessarily the best answer because it doesn't take into consideration the kind of the nuances of the community or the language. Um, and, or just, you know, the, uh, or Bear's example of having to actually go directly to the drummers. Like, I mean, all of that is just examples of, you know, why it's, more, you know, it's tougher to do this kind of thing. And so certainly if, if you're kind of from, a, you know, a non-Indigenous um, person wanting to engage with the, um, with the Indigenous arts or communities in, within the arts, you know, you have to recognize that, that it is, um, there's certain, these kind of protocols are some, are, and, and I mean, the, the fact that we have to kind of create these protocols is because, um, you know, the fact is that people aren't recognizing them um, without them. Um, and it means us kind of having to do a lot of this advocacy ourselves, um, which we will do. And, you know, that and th we kind of recognize that that's part of our role um, is kind of fighting for these this kind of representation um, and engagement. But, you know, we're also, um, you know, I've I, I like collaborative work environments. I like um, collaborating, uh, like Bear and I work together. Um, and so it's, I like collaborating with First Nations communities and you know, with non-Indigenous people that are excited about working within Indigenous communities. Um, but it's, um, yeah, it is kind of like these conversations are really important. And, um, and these kinds of, you know, having these um, actually kind of written protocols are, are really important just to kind of have these conversations started. And Bear, is there anything in your industry that when you think, you know, working within the industry, how the businesses or, or the companies can begin to take these things into account that would facilitate your creation? Hmm. Uh, I, I think, yeah, it's, it's about just making space for, you know, to ask these questions, to have these kind of um, protocols in implemented, you know, that there just needs to be space made for that, I think, with, <clears throat> across the board, you know, uh, when either if you're 
indigenous people dealing with other indigenous people or the industry dealing with indigenous art. Like it just, there needs to be space made for this and recognize that just, you know, one, there's, that there's, there's, more, there's more to deal with when you're dealing with indigenous art than just uh, the, sur- the surface. And what you, what you uh, might find works with one community or one group of people mm-hmm. isn't going to work with the next. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, that there, isn't, uh, there isn't necessarily one answer that you have to keep on engaging with people and those communities. Did you, do we have time to just get, Yeah, okay. Like, before we move to questions? Okay. Um, so you raised the concept of creating space, which is often something that when I talk about these things um, in a broader audience, the first thing that comes to people's minds is the concept of freedom of speech and why can't I do whatever I want. And, um, and I don't think that these protocols preclude that. I think that, as you said, they're trying to create you know, it's also being aware that you're taking up space if you're telling Indigenous stories. Um, And that I found something very interesting, and you might want to speak to this, Jenny. Someone was saying one one aspect of the protocols is, you you know, instead of, we didn't want the protocols to be a map for non-Indigenous people to tell stories or a checklist as was you know, oh, if I just do X, Y, Z, I can tell whatever story I want. And um, just that concept of, of creating space and being open um, to, to being told, no, you can't tell that story. Um, and Jenny, I don't know if you have any thoughts, like things that came out through your process where you were told no or where you encountered missteps and protocols as Bear was saying? Well, I think for me, I was relatively new to the industry. So I come from the north and um, um, sort of it's a new industry, right, for, for me to walk into. So I didn't really understand what, what I was expecting or what to expect. So I think it, it's, it's always beneficial. Like I think the protocols now that, you know, when I read these, looking at these protocols or any other protocols that, I, that I'm looking at, or it helps for us to have an entry point to have that sort of building of building blocks for a relationship to start. Um, whereas before, when I was first entering, it was me trying to explain, and when you're explaining to people come, come from a very westernized sort of industry, um, at times you may butt heads from time to time, or you may, there may be misunderstandings or misconceptions um, along those lines. So it, it wastes a lot of time. You just want to do the work. And I think it, it helps to have, the, these, um, to have these as a building block, I should say. Um, yeah, at times it was it was difficult with language, right? So when you're working at times maybe with with editors, when you're trying to figure out a marketing plan and and trying to figure out what does it look like to to be to be conscious and aware of to doing it respectfully, um, you know, to market to the indigenous community as well, um, to then think about you know we're bringing underrepresented um, indigenous literature in this case um, to to a market that. Um, it's growing, um, not growing quickly enough, but it's growing. But how do you do it in a, in a respectful way and thinking about, um, thinking about what that looks like in terms of everything from a book launch might look very different. Um, in my case, you know, I brought it home to my community and did it during a, a community event and a community celebration. And um, instead of having it, you know, downtown Toronto, for example, and what did that look like? 
Um, but in terms of the actual overall process, um, there was a lot of learning for myself, thinking about protocols, a lot of learning for the, the publisher, and a lot of learning for the people that I've worked with um, over the years. Um, but it's, it's all about um, being patient and being taking time. Can I just throw something in? Yeah, yeah. You, you brought up that before about freedom, freedom of speech and like maybe people feeling uh, restricted. Mm -hmm. But I, I would argue that by following these protocols and by engaging with communities and people who hold you know, these stories and hold the permission for these things, that by following those protocols and showing those people respect, that you're going to actually open up a lot more. And that you might think that you're going in with this story that you know from this community, but by going in, following protocols, engaging with people, they might tell you you can't tell that story, but there might be this whole other story that you had no idea about that's going to come out of that engagement. I think one of the protocols that was mentioned in there was talking about that some stories just can't be told or shared. And for some people, it's very difficult to understand. You assume that you know everything's game. Um, but in our communities, there's, there's stories that, that aren't to be shared. They're to be kept within a community. They're sort of, wouldn't say this, they're sacred or secret, those kind of things. And, and I think that's, that's difficult for some people to understand. Or there's, there's only so far you can open the doors at, at times. So. There was a, there's great examples from filmmakers who, who were going to um, elders or to communities to get permission to tell uh, stories that were, were very old stories. and, and some of the stories are actually owned by multiple owned by multiple communities. So um, I think it was Helen Hag Brown who was talking about she got permission to, you know, she had to. She, first of all, you have to tell the story. It's an or it's tra oral transmission of culture is is prevalent. So and it remains. So you have to tell the story the way that you've been told the story. Um, in order to ensure that you're getting the story right. So that's even just a starting point, is that you're telling the story properly before you would get permission, for example. But also, um, she said if she ever wants to use that story in a different context, she has to go back and get the same permissions because um, she got permission to use it in the way that it was used. And, you know, I think eight communities owned the story. She chose one uh, they all had different versions. She chose the one she was going to use and, and, and told that story in, in the way that she did in order to get that permission. So, you know, even if you think you're, you're going in with uh, a story you think is your own or a story that you think has one owner, that's often also not the case. So in just in our last few minutes, is there anything else, any other issues you've come across uh, or want to raise with regards to protocols or their use? No. You had mentioned just, I mean, part of this is this process of building relationships takes time. So if you think about funders or budgets for these things, you know, a lot of time this is a process that's followed by artists that isn't taken into account in budgets currently. So to me, if you're thinking about, if you're in a funding agency in that respect, thinking about the protocols and definitions and the money to, to do this um, are things that you would want to take into account. Business-wise, is there anything that I'm missing in that list? So maybe we can move to the question portion of the discussion. 
I don't know if there's mics going around or if you just want to speak up. I think there are mics. Yeah. Just down here. How are we doing? Uh, okay, uh, my name's uh, Nancy Payne. I'm the editor of Kayak, which is a kids' history magazine. And it's often a, we often do survey articles that have very short descriptions of different things from throughout Canada's story. And I'm thinking our fall issue is going to be about ghosts and monsters and, I'm thinking, uh, and, and scary tales. And I'm thinking of things like the Wendigo or, or Raven or those kinds of things. What Should we be mentioning those stories? And if we did, what would we keep in mind as we wrote or illustrated them? Um, I don't even know if those are my stories to tell, but I also feel like our young readers need to know that those stories exist. And I know that that's not a question any one person can answer, but I'd be, appreciate your thoughts. Sure. Um, well, I think, um, yeah, I think that certainly that those stories have a, have a place in, in, if I mean, in your magazine. I think that um, when it comes to those kinds of things, it's just, you know, if you hire staff writers or if you kind of contract writers, um, for those if you're, if you, um, you know, you can look for indigenous writers that have stories from, from their communities. And I think that would be the best way to approach it. Um, because I don't, I, I don't see why, why they wouldn't be a good thing. Anyone else? Yeah, mm -hmm. that, that'd be the only way to go about it. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. Indigenous storytellers, indigenous artists. Hi. Is it on? Oh, yeah. Hi, good morning. Uh, I do contract work for writers. Like, I, we, we publish, so we contract work. So in light of these new protocols, in our contracts for contributors and so on, if, if the writer is an Indigenous writer, should we be adding something in our contracts to make sure, like, we often in our contracts add, add things like making sure that the work is indeed original and that it's, you know, um, properly... Um, properly documented and sourced and all those kinds of things. Should, should we be adding a new aspect to our contributor contracts to I, make sure that the permissions are authentic? I, I mean, I'd be curious about your thoughts, guys, but I mean, I would be, I, I'd be hesitant to kind of like add in some other thing that would make it more difficult for Indigenous writers to get their stories seen. But I, um, but uh, yeah, it is, if you're talking about contracts in terms of like the actual like we're signing off and we're working together for example i think it's the idea of making sure that there's space of who owns like the, the actual story itself in the end or the, the writing in terms of the copyright um rethinking that possibly in some cases and then also um it's helpful for the times to review it as well too i've had stuff at the very beginning like stuff that i did on the side other stuff where i don't get time to I, i'm not given a, a space to review the stuff and it's been changed or edited and suddenly it changes the context. They don't understand on the other side what I was trying to really get at. Changes the context. It's a little bit embarrassing in some cases, or it's a little bit, you know, takes things into a whole different, to a different world. But to have that opportunity um, to, for a person to know that they're gonna get time to review it right up until the very end of publication, until, until publication is, is helpful and beneficial with the relationship. Hello. 
My name is uh, Jeremy Edwards. I'm uh, principal producer, vice president of Wabunganung, which is owned by uh, Jim Compton. I work with indigenous creatives. I've been doing uh, documentaries for about 20 years, in the last 15 years, uh, specifically working with uh, indigenous creative teams. Uh, I've seen a lot of changes over that time. I, I think what you're talking about is really key and important. And I think the protocol system actually goes even deeper because there's a lot to learn about protocol. Um, I know as being a documentary producer, even with my very first film, that we couldn't actually tell the real story behind the subject when it came up because of the impact it would have had on the family. So I think that that goes also beyond, like for any person who makes a film about a person, there has to be a very important relationship of trust and respect that's built when you're putting somebody up on that big screen and telling their story. I know, of course, the situation. I didn't know, though, that you received a cease and desist, but I'm assuming that was the a song we licensed for Urban Native Girl, Redskin Girl, with the Northern Cree. But I did actually end up going and meeting with them in Alberta and paying them directly as well as their label, as well as uh, your label. So we did make sure to cross those bridges as they came. But there was a lot of learning to do, a lot of learning for me to do from uh, Indigenous elders to understand protocol, understand how to ask for things, how to approach things. So that's something that uh, my, uh, my boss, Jim, you know, teaches me in, but he teaches me more the Anishinaabewin way. But I've been also uh, educated by Cree elders in the community uh, about how to properly approach. But I think that the role that I've been playing is not so much longer needed anymore. I see myself that the the producers that I've mentored and trained are, are, are outstanding indigenous producers. People like Michelle St. John, working with Shane Belcourt. These are amazing storytellers doing excellent work in the community. So I see myself more really working towards an EP position. But there's also really strong executive producers like Paula Devonshire, other people in the community. I worked with her on my very first projects even before working in the indigenous community. You know, it's, uh, I think this Indigenous Film Office is a really important first step. I know uh, Jesse has also just hired Jamie to work with. He's got a full-time staff to help build it. But I really think that Indigenous people need to be controlling how the financing moves, how the, the whole, what I've been doing, which I call the white monkey dance, you know, filling in all those boxes, dealing with all the legal, all those issues that you deal with in production. But the truth is a producer has ownership within that thing. At the end, it's important that indigenous producers maintain ownership of their creative properties, you know, right through to the end. So my hope, and I'm wondering your thoughts on this, is that the indigenous screen office could expand in such a way that it actually starts controlling the, like the CMF Aboriginal language component that should be administered by them. The, uh, new funds that might be announced by large international distributors should perhaps be controlled by them directly. Maybe they can come up with a system which is less colonial, less bureaucratic, because our film system is that. I think that's why I worked with Jim from the first place, because he was fed up with dealing with that. 
And that is something that, uh, so if anyone has, you know, as I said, there'll be a new version of the protocols, uh, better design version coming out. And you can find it through Imaginative website, and you'll also be able to find it through the screen office. But if you have questions around, I mean, further questions around how to do this, that's the screen office can help facilitate um, things like that. And I think, you know, it's been a, a year in development around what it's going to look like and staffing it. And over the next year, there's going to be some consultation um, with the community around what's next. So does the community want it to be a funding body or an advocacy body or, you know, so I think those things are going to be uh, worked out. But I'd say in terms of film and, and television specifically, where there are questions or, or considerations around, um, from a business end, you can go to the screen office, not so much in, in some of the other industries because that doesn't exist. But, but you know, it's even, even at um, Telefilm, they've now got mm -hmm. an Indigenous liaison and just having um, kind of a, someone within the organization that, you know, I know because, you know, we all kind of know each other <laughs> if you're kind of indigenous and working in film or... So it's kind of like nice to have someone that you're comfortable going to um, and having is that kind of... Uh, because th these kinds of institutions, especially as an indigenous person, can be intimidating. Um, and so, yeah, as we kind of develop our own institutions like the ISO, um, and then also start to kind of indigenize the indigenous programs within these other funding bodies and stuff. Because indigenous people do, uh, artists in particular, we do rely on a lot of the time public funds, um, these kinds of things um, uh, that are very bureaucratic um, and can, you know, incentivize indigeneity or monetize indigeneity in a way that encourages others to take advantage of us or having to kind of like represent ourselves in certain ways. Um, so yeah, as these kinds of in institutions change um, or, or kind of like grow, expand or be, are created um, entirely, um, I think that that will kind of, you know, these will kind of figure out what exactly they do. But I mean, it, 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 we talk about strategic partnerships and it's, um, you know, it's important to have, like, it's great to have the ISO in order to kind of be able to then, like, because then you can partner, if you're partnering with them or in, like, Imaginative, um, you know, which is another great organization and be able to then kind of, like, leverage those partnerships with others. Like, I mean, there's lots of kind of ways you can do that. Hello. Um, back here. Hi. <laughs> As a female producer and working with a female-led company, we've done a lot of thinking about how to um, encourage men to stop telling women's stories. And the answer is always have a woman in the room. And it seems to me that is probably the, you know, the basis for any protocol for Indigenous stories is to have somebody who actually knows the stories in the room. So I just wonder, is there any kind of formalized mentorship process or any any really good program at the moment that's helping the indigenous communities work in media, um, get their start, or, or encouraging them to work with non-indigenous companies? Yeah, I think actually that's a really good point. We've kind of been talking about the nuances of these protocols and all of the, the importance of like these very specific things, but we also have to recognize that it's still kind of at, we're still at a point where we're still trying to encourage people to even get 
an indigenous person in the room if they're telling indigenous stories or to hire an indigenous writer if they're going to be featuring indigenous stories. So I think like from even at like before we kind of get into the nuances of that, like figuring out how those collaborations can work and also how they can work in an, like, because it is kind of an awkward conversation for some people. It's like kind of a weird thing, like hiring someone based on their race. You know, these are kind of awkward conversations, but I think they're really important ones to have. And, you know, for me as an indigenous person, I've gotten a lot better at, you know, when I'm going into conversations with people that I might be collaborating with, if they're non-indigenous, kind of being very upfront, being like, hey, so what is, why is it that you're wanting to work with me? Like, and make sure that it's like, for reasons that, you know, it, that feel comfortable. Because like, so that I know it's not just because like, you know, they really wanted to tell that like, Wendigo story, so they hired an Inuk, which would be weird. But like, that, hap that happens all, I got pitched, I got asked to produce a Wendigo story last week. But um, it's, it's, but I think, yeah, I think certainly, um, um, like I, I know like for, for film, like in going to places like Imaginative, Daniel Northway Frank is over there. Like if you want to go, they know indigenous writers, you know, and they might be a good point of reference to be, and, and they also have um, mentorship programs as an institution that run year round for writers or different kinds of people. Um, so kind of reaching out to those kinds of organizations. Um, I'm not sure in publishing if there's, uh, there's like, um, there's an Inuit kind of language publishing organization here in Toronto um, and uh, called Inhabit Media, like reaching out to them and if they have any freelance writers. Um, I don't think it's just the idea of looking for the writers, but I think it's also how you're going to support um, Indigenous peoples to be part of the process and to walk with you um, throughout the you know, full circle with you. Um, and to being very own, um, honest, to being very transparent with all of the processes and having those discussions all along the way. So when you look at the read through the protocols that were mentioned, there's lots of entry points and lots of things that you can think about of creating almost questions or conversations that could help to spark those conversations by using the protocols to think about, you know, what does consent mean? You know, what does, what does engagement look like? What does collaboration really mean? You know, as opposed to hiring that consultant. Um, so there's, and then also, you know, how do we celebrate at the end, you know, that, you know, this, this is, this is done, like, what do we do? What does it look like? But there, I think there's, there's ways that we can learn from each other. And I've been really fortunate along the way. I think it, it took time um, for people just coming up to me and, you know, from different areas, um, even outside of Second Story to, to come out and, you know, have these conversations with me over, over lunch or just continuing to develop a relationship with me. Actually, Mary Best, you know, here, here as well, and she's been somebody who's been fantastic and a good support and a, a very strong mentor and an advocate as well. Um, but there's, there's, I think that's, that's so, so important, especially when you feel so lost in a space and especially when you're, you know you're underrepresented and you know you're trying to, you know, at times, you know, break down barriers that exist and these obstacles that exist, but you need to know there's people with you and that are willing to talk through the problems and the challenges that you may be experiencing and to help you work through that. That's needed. It's definitely, especially to keep us in the industry too. And a good example of an institution that recently did that like big think was the NFB that kind of has has a history of doing lots of like telling lots of indigenous stories and that being kind of a big and they recognized that there just wasn't the representation at the organization um, that there was only like two full-time indigenous staff um, and so but then recognizing that and then putting into a implementing a plan that would kind of 
you know, address it just from an institutional level um, and recognizing that if they're going to be telling Indigenous stories, like, they have to have um, representation from, like, right at the institution, not just, like, within just their writers or, or, or their, their directors or, or things like that. I think we have time for one last question. I have a couple. I'm not sure where... I can just do the last thing, just so to update on the protocols book and that kind of stuff so that other person can go if they want. Or not. There was a question right over here and one right here. Thanks. Um, I'm Nicholas Brown. I'm the Director of Programs and Partnerships at Canadian Art. We're um, a uh, visual art publication. Um, so in my role, I work kind of like between uh, content provision and uh, um, some of the funding that we get from different streams. So my question to the panel is um, in thinking through the protocols and specifically, uh, Barry, you talked about uh, making space. And so when making space requires necessarily slowing down and, and not necessarily meeting deadlines that are laid out in grants or, or you know, partnerships or things. Uh, I'm just really curious to hear from you how you go about that discussion or, or just kind of like, make, like clarifying or, or, or recharting the terms of, a, of an agreement just to be able to make the room for the, those stories to be told properly. Uh, well, I think it's a, it's a case where you, know, you have to, both sides need to be respected. <laughs> there's the there's the, the indigenous protocols we're talking about, but there's also the protocols of working with deadlines and all of those things. So I think, uh, you know, when I talk about creating space, it is about creating the time and the, the space to ha ask those questions and to have those conversations. But at the same time, we need to work together too. <laughs> yeah, it's um, work with better employees. <laughs> Find better indigenous people. <laughs> No, um, but also it's but also it's like recognizing that there's also different limitations with from coming from indigenous communities, and if you're going into um, and some like and they might be very practical like internet restrictions or things like that. Um, but if you're finding that your indigenous writers are not meeting deadlines and it's consistent, it's probably there. There might also be like that they might need extra support that's not being provided. Um, whether that's um, mentorship or whether that's um, just a different way of kind of maybe communicating. Maybe there's someone, if there's indigenous representation at your organization, um, but kind of figuring out what that is and, and trying to kind of, but as like, because, you know, of course, um, like um, it, it is kind of finding that balance of being respectful and understanding, but, um, and, and it, it should take, it, it is more work to kind of work within that community, but it shouldn't be, um, and sometimes it might mean a little bit mentor, more mentorship or training or that sort of thing. Um, uh, and that should be what takes up maybe a little bit more time to get them to a point where they can be working alongside your team. Um, because like the worst thing is kind of be get, being, giving someone a position just because they might, you know, they might be an indigenous writer but not qualified and then having to, um, you know, not be succeeding. I mean, because that's also devastating. I just want to say one thing really quickly. Those protocols, when you read through them, they humble you. They're full of humility. They make you sort of pause and reflect what you need to learn, what you need to rethink about your practices on both sides, right? So think of it that way. It was also a big thing for us within 
uh, our support system, you know, with our uh, management or our agency and explaining to them what it's like dealing with people from communities who aren't necessarily professionals in, say, booking a, a group. So we definitely had to take people, you know, and say, when you're dealing with a, with a community and you're not getting all the information you want or things are coming too slowly, that you might have to do, like Nyla said, a little bit of outreach and say, you know, this is, this is the way we need to get things and, and help people get to that point where they are working um, with you at an even level. Because, I mean, communities themselves are inundated with, with requests and actually have protocols for a number of things because they've, A, been studied to death. So if you want to come in, if you're from an education authority or, or uh, university or, or you want data, there are existing protocols you have to follow for that as well. But individuals in institutions, you know, I, I love the concept of, of mentorships and we need more and we should highlight that they should be paid mentorships as well. Um, but also like just keeping in mind what it's like when you're the, especially if you're the only woman in a writer's room, think about how that feels to you and then be the only indigenous person in any room and what those expectations mean and, and uh, the difficulties that arise just in attempting to represent an entire group of people. And being like the only woman in a writer's room of men writing a show about women. <laughs> yes, that. <laughs> Uh, that's all we have time for, so I'd just like to thank the panelists very much and yourselves for, for coming out. Daniel, did you want to say something quick about the protocols? Yeah, just, if you can hear me. Uh, hi, I'm Daniel. You're welcome to come and talk to me or at Imaginative, any of our team, when you're ready. It's our 20th anniversary this year, so we hope you'll also come out to the festival. But in terms of the protocols, we're literally designing the French side of the new protocols guide right now, so within the next two weeks, um, we'll be sending out, we'll be doing kind of a launch of a pre-order uh, of that. So if you go onto the Imaginative, here, I'll, I'll say you the link right now because we're updating the website. Yeah. It's www.in-institute.org slash publications. So if you go onto there, uh, at the very bottom, it actually has an order form right now for what you'd like possibly as this. Uh, it, it'll be probably around the $40 range per, per copy, um, but we're trying to figure out what the interest is first before we go and spend thousands and thousands of dollars on, on that. Um, and yes, I encourage you all to read this report. It takes about two hours. I encourage you to bring it back to your organizations, sit in a reading circle, each read 10 pages of it. I know it sounds like a classroom activity, but when you're all sitting together and learning together and seeing where your faults are together and where your strengths are, I think that makes it a much more collaborative nature of learning that I think is more than just, oh, I'm gonna read that thing that's on my desktop. Um, I think it's a, it's a good way to, to have it steepen and you feel it by the end, whether you're doing, going on the right path to working with indigenous content or not and need to go back a couple steps. So it's a great report and thank you, Marcia, for all your hard work and all your contributors. It's been amazing. I also want to thank Ontario Creates because they were one of the, the funders and I want to thank them for having us here today as well. Not the first one. Hey. <laughs> 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 so funny. <laughs>